exciting. This is Four Color Radio, where the notes meet the page. And good evening, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday. I am Jay Bardella, your host for Four Color Radio, and we're coming to you live over the air here on SoundSugarRadio.com. Uh, special thanks to them for giving me a chance to talk a little bit about comics and a little bit about music. Uh, and speaking of Sound Sugar Radio, I uh, just want to do a quick a couple of plugs here for Sound Sugar Radio for the month of May. Um, they like to do a little bit of uh, philanthropy, a little bit of fundraising and stuff like that. So this month, for the month of May. They are collecting donations for the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada. And if you visit soundsugarradio.com's main page, there is a donate button on there and you can make a donation and contribute to a very, very excellent cause. And for those of you turning in live tonight, uh, you can also click on the chat feature. Uh, I'll have the chat window open. Uh, but unfortunately, I am uh, not the sharpest cheese on the cracker. So running a board and controlling music and talking to my guest and looking at a chat all at the same time is probably going to like fry my brain a little. So uh, feel free to just chime in, though. Say hi that you're listening. If you hear a song that you really love, um, you know, feel free to like shout it out. And let us know. So, yes, tonight's show. This is the show uh, where we talk music um, based on films or from films based on comics, uh, which last week we uh, reviewed the Superman the Motion Picture soundtrack. Talked a little bit about that with our friend Phil. And tonight my guest is uh, Mr. Cyril Akers, who... uh, Big time comic collecting fan, uh, big time music fan has introduced me into a world of uh, a lot heavier and darker music than I used to listen to. Uh, and uh, just here to bring to us tonight, we're going to talk about The Crow. I'm glad to be here and be a, a corrupting influence and uh, <laughs> spread my signal even further. Oh, absolutely. That's fantastic. I appreciate it. Um, oh, look at that. I'm getting texts. Probably shouldn't do that while I'm on the air. <laughs> Awesome. So yeah, The Crow, uh, a very dark uh, comic that came out in 1989 uh, and then not long after spawned a film, which at that period of time was almost unheard of. Like it was a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, like five years. Yeah, very, very uncommon because I mean, I don't even know, like um, I'd have to look it up, but I don't even think the Turtles had that quick of a turnaround time. I mean, they were... Not from the comic, no. I mean, it got pretty... Once they hit the cartoon... Then they were, yeah, they were banging out everything real quick then. I think the movie came yeah. out with probably within five years of the cartoon debuting. Now you, you put some, you, you did a little bit, like you dropped the crow when I said, hey, what do you want to do? And you dropped the crow pretty quick. Uh, and then you went and did some research. <laughs> you actually had to go. And, and I, when you told me you had done this, it was, it led to a whole other conversation, which we can make plugs for streaming services and movies <laughs> they have about this right now. Yeah. But uh, you see, so you went out and because uh, you wanted to watch The Crow yep. just to refresh your memory. I had no choice but to rent it 
on DVD. Not even a Blu-ray. They didn't even have that. They had a DVD. <laughs> but uh, this was a brutal condemnation of the, the landscape of streaming services in Canada right now because uh, I checked. I've got, like, Amazon. I've got uh, Netflix, Crave, even that weird free one that you can watch movies if you're okay with watching commercials in the middle of them. And none of them had the crow on it. And I even checked a few, like the, like the I think I went on like Apple and see if they had it. You yeah. can just buy it or rent it, and it wasn't there. So I actually had to go to Stony Plain and, and rent it on a physical DVD. And uh, and there you go. I watched it at old school uh, for the first time in probably about 10 years. I haven't seen it. Well, see, then that's the dedication that we look for <laughs> in our guests when we uh, when I, when we bring them on to the show here. Um, that's that's pretty awesome. Uh, you picked a handful of songs that were uh, you know very cool and very influential. So we're gonna kick off uh, our first song tonight um, by a little known band called The Cure. Um, yeah, it's a deep cut. It is a deep cut, but it was it was weird because when I obviously went through and started listening to everything just to get reacquainted with stuff. Um, yeah, listening to this song, it's like, it all came back, um, super, super quick. And, uh, and it was very, uh, very much just, a, a, a taking me back to, well, the early nineties. Yep. So, uh, all right. So we're going to cut here to the cure from the crow soundtrack and their song burn.
And we're back. <laughs> a little bit of silence after some Nine Inch Nails. Never necessarily a bad thing. Moment of silence. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> Moment a, of silence. For, there's a lot of deaths on this this movie. Inspiring <laughs> the comic. It is a dark, even. dark film. <laughs> um, so first there we heard The Cure and Burn. Uh, coming from the Crow soundtrack. Followed up by uh, Nine Inch Nails and uh, their song Dead Souls. And it looks like we've got our little technical glitch all taken care of, except now we have like multiple laptops and things everywhere, and it's just chaos and madness. It's getting crowded. It's getting a little crowded here. Yeah, it's cool. Um, fun point that I liked about uh, that was, was nice to bring up about Nine Inch Nails, anyway, was that uh, as we heard, you know, uh, Dead Souls, which is a great name, totally goth, fits the film so well. Um, but uh, the lead singer from Nine Inch Nails, Mr. Trent Reznor there, uh, he just won an Oscar for a Disney film. Another Oscar. He's That's got two now. He's got, he actually yeah, he was nominated twice at the Oscars this year. <laughs> in the same year. In the same year. <laughs> yeah. um, but he ends up winning for doing a Disney film for Soul. He does the, the him and Atticus and the, a couple other folks there, which I thought was just hilarious because you – Think of Trent Reznor. You think of Nine Inch Nails, the movement that they had to progress goth, uh, you know, through the '90s, yep. and now he's writing Disney flicks. Yeah, it's, 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 he's had this, you know, really interesting second career, uh, going into film scoring and things like that, and uh, very different signing than if you're used to kind of old Nine Inch Nails, Downward Spiral, um, you know, very noisy, very aggressive, and then now he's got like these really kind of gentle scores with it's very relaxing. You kind of put it on at bedtime and just uh, conk right out. Yeah, well, it's good. It's pretty awesome when you can reinvent yourself. You know, you're just not getting oh, yeah. stuck to that that one formula for your entire life. Because I can't imagine Reznor now still trying to do like the wet, drippy hair, all black. <laughs> kind of gothy emo type vibe there it's like yeah you know he's jack now he's like super healthy looking he looks i like know he's working out so all clean cut and stuff and yeah, yeah it's pretty uh, pretty impressive super good but i mean then previous to that though we have the cure so we've got like we're going from like the the ultimate of you know kind of the 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 early emo angsty you yep. know forerunners and and that song like um burn is like super it was pretty slow and drippy and uh, yeah, really dark. An interesting connection between the two is that Trent Reznor inducted the, the Cure into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, so he's he's been a big fan of them, and he had some funny story. I can't remember exactly. I read it years ago, but he was at some music festival, and it was the first time he met Robert Smith, and they like cleared out a nightclub for him, and they slow danced together for a while. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> See now, where were where were cell phones and and, yeah. and YouTube's and stuff back at those times? You can see Trent Reznor and Robert Smith just slow dancing together yeah, in an the, empty room. <laughs> yeah, the Dead Souls, a you know, cover of a Joy Division song, and um, so Trent was kind of the second choice for this. Originally, they had gone to to Peter Hook and uh, and New Order, and uh, pitched to him covering "Love Will Tear Us Apart," and I don't think he was really interested. They're like, "Well, why would we cover a song by our old band?" And he's like, "Yeah, pass." And then so they brought it to Trent, and Trent was like. Apparently quite a fan of the comic book as well as a fan of Joy Division, so he was all over it. And it was the first song they recorded in the, the Sharon Tate murder house, uh, which is where they recorded Downward Spiral as well. So that was the first, uh, the first cut they recorded in the, in the house. And then uh, three weeks before the soundtrack came out, uh, Downward Spiral came out. And uh, so at this point... Oh, it was Nine that Sh tight, eh? I yeah, Nine Inch Nails was now you know, bona fide superstars at that point. Yeah, because that, um, that album was just... Downward That's their Spiral biggest album beast. still. Yeah. I think it's uh, four times platinum now. And uh, debuted number two on the Billboard. It came out, unfortunately, the same week as Super Unknown by Soundgarden. So it got, <laughs> it got bumped. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty hard 
thing to run into. It's a pretty big competitor to, to match up against <laughs> at that point in time. Yeah. You know, the grunge being as as massive as it was and taken off. And yeah, Soundgarden's the, the super unknown album. I think it's their biggest album too, and that's yeah. five or six times platinum as well. So, so when you you so you went you went and rented the movie, just give it a watch again. Yeah. Uh, you've got your copy of the the uh, the Crow Tray paperback here. You've you've plowed through it again, and now we're chewing on the soundtrack. Um, how how did you find like obviously when you're watching the movie this time around you're really kind of focusing on the soundtrack because yep. you know to come on to the show and talk about it how do you how do you feel that it's synced up yeah i mean the first song we played uh, burned by the cure is really the linchpin of the soundtrack and i think like the the musical highlight of the film because it's kind of the the becoming right where he he goes back to the apartment eric draven puts the makeup on and really kind of accepts you know what's happening and that's like the mission begins there it's like okay i'm back I'm here for revenge, pets the cat, goes out the window. And, <laughs> and I thought it was interesting because the cat is Snow White, and uh, that's the cat he had when he was alive, and kind of says goodbye to the cat, and then goes out the window, and uh, the black crow flies over his shoulder, so kind of like the segue from the last remnants of life maybe, and then like accepting death and uh, and spreading that out through the city with, uh, with, uh, <laughs> with the gang he's about to hunt down. I can actually, like, as a kind of right now even just play burn back in my head yeah. and just picturing the visual. Cause I mean, even if you don't know the story of the crow and if you have any passing familiarity with uh, comics uh, from the nineties uh, and the movie, or even if you just have a, a passing of WCW from the 1990s, <laughs> you can visualize the crow. It's just, yeah. it's pretty straightforward, all black, white face, white paint all over the face and that jet black hair. And you kind of know, and you, when you listen to the cures burn and you, just kind of picture him putting on makeup, you know, getting ready to go out and seek vengeance and stuff. That that music just just kills it spot on. Perfect. Yeah, and like I said, that's that's really like the high point of the film. And I think uh, when you you have such a strong visual, like whenever I hear that song, I can just I can picture the whole scene perfectly. Whereas a few others in here, I struggle to remember where they were in, in the film. <laughs> But it's it's a pretty weird little mix too for the for the whole soundtrack overall. We're gonna get to a couple more songs here. We just uh, had to jump around a little bit as we uh, tried to get rid of that uh, a little glitch, which probably was less annoying um, when Nine Inch Nails was on because it probably just fit right in. It was a nice little steady rhythmic beat there. But uh, I think we're gonna kind of go back to um, we're gonna shuffle back here one song in our list that we were gonna do, and uh, we're gonna go on to one of many songs and bands that just have like unnecessarily long titles with weird words in them. Um, but uh, we're going to go to Golgotha Tenement Blues by Machines of Loving Grace. Um, just, it seems so extra. You know, I know what Noah was saying was extra back in 95, but now it seems kind of extra. We, we goss like <laughs> to, you know, show off, uh, you know, how many times we've read through the thesaurus and the, the dictionary. Awesome. All right, so we're going to jump right into here, our third track for tonight, Golgotha Tenement Blue.
And then that was Machines of Loving Grace with Golgotha Tenement Blues, which, I don't know, is that like a reference to, like, where Eric Draven lived? In his I tenement? think so, yeah, because they said that they wrote the song specifically for the film. So yeah. it must have been a reference to the, uh, the, uh, the slum apartment building that they were trying to get fixed up and that uh, ultimately cost them their lives. <laughs> and as we were talking about while that song was playing, you were mentioning about the fact that, like, how many artists had already read the comic and you know wanted to do and again we're talking like five years between when this comic comes out and this comic's coming out 89 we're coming into the early 90s uh marvel and dc are dominating um the shelves because they're killing heroes and they're putting out hollow foils and they're doing everything Number else ones all over the place yeah and then by 91 92 we got image coming up and their books are selling a million copies apiece when they bother okay. to ship. And, uh, but then the crow is just kind of chugging along enough that they're picking up like all these bands and they're not just like saying, Hey, can we borrow a song? These artists are coming out and it's like, we're going to write a new song. Cause this comic is, is fantastic. Yeah. Somehow apparently machines of love and grace saw the script a year ahead of time before the film even came out. Oh wow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, even less than five years. And, uh, again, they were, they were on board and they wanted to contribute a brand new song and they actually based it on what they read in the script. So it was based on the film script rather than the, the comic book storyline. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty wild. That's something that's not super common, but then again, in yeah. comic book movies were not oh, common. They keep scripts on, under lock and key now because they're worried about leaks and, and all this other kind of things. So. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty wild. It's great that there was enough interest there that they were able to get a hold of the stuff and, and kind of do something with it ahead of time, which was, which was pretty awesome. Um, that movie was not the end though. Cause I mean, <laughs> there was, there was so much to that. Um, there were three sequels in total. Um, and the TV series, uh, which I don't, I don't know how much of it have you've watched. I haven't seen it. Like I would watch it because, you know, I think Mark DeCascos is, is great and I think he'd be a, a great, Eric Draven, because I think they did, it was based on Eric Draven, right? The yeah. TV show. It, it, I never I, saw it, it. I believe so, yeah. So that would fit, and you know, he's a great uh, actor yeah. for action movies, and uh, he looks kind of like Brandon Lee. He's got the long hair, or at least he did at the time. I don't know if he still does. Yeah. But uh, I never saw the show, but if, certainly if, if, if I ever could find it on a streaming network, <laughs> I would watch it. But I'm, I'm not holding up high hopes if the yeah. popular film was seems to be a anyway. whole bunch of uh, anti-Crow sentiment among the streaming services out there. It's Down. very, very unfair. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, the biggest, the biggest story that comes out of the Crow movie uh, is the unfortunate death of uh, Brandon Lee. Yes. And, um, and I... Again, when we when we kind of picked this, it's kind of like I knew about it. I'm like, okay, I want to just kind of dig into this a little bit to see like what actually happened. I just remember it was a tragic accident, and uh, <clears throat> everything that's kind of chronicled about it just says, "Yep, it was just an accident. It was just a little bit of sloppiness, and and that was unfortunate because as most people will will talk about, they just they say that like that he like Lee had. He had it. He had the star power. He had the quality. This was the launching pad, and he was just taken from us way too soon. Yeah, he was. He was fantastic in this movie. I think he really nailed it. And uh, and it's uh, you know it's impossible to talk about the crow, if, whether that's the film or just the overall you know all the things related to the crow without this story kind of coming up. Yeah. And um, you know James O'Barr had really struck up a friendship with with Brandon Lee. So again, another horrible tragedy. 
uh, in his life to go along with the crow. I mean, it's it's incredible that he still even has a relationship with the source material, considering <laughs> all the negative things that have come out of it for him. Well, yeah, for sure. Like, so James O'Barr, the creator of the crow, he actually had, um, he started the book uh, after his fiance was killed by a drunk driver. And that was kind of the inspiration for this book and, and the desire to seek vengeance and, uh, and kind of, you know, atone for, you know, the loss of his fiance. Um, and there was an interview that he had done uh, and he was talking about how when he, he actually started writing the book in 81, didn't publish it till 89. Um, but at the time when he continued to work on it, you know, he said the intent of it was to be therapeutic, was to help kind of get the pain and the suffering out of him. Um, but he said it, it, did the exact opposite. It increased, it, it made him more self-destructive. And, and his quote was, there is pure anger on every page. Yeah. And I think a uh, part of the story that kind of gets missed with a lot of people, they just mentioned, oh, his fiance was killed and that was the impetus for it. But he was, he felt very guilty about it because his car was like super heat score in town. He had a lot of tickets on it. And if, if his, he got ticketed one more time and they were taking the car away. So he called his fiance and said, Hey, I don't want to take the car out because, you know, if the cops see me again because I'm driving with an expired license or whatever it was, that's it. So can you come pick me up? And then so she was on the way to pick him up because of that, and that's when she got killed. So he had all this guilt because he felt like it was his fault that she had died. And uh, so that kind of adds that extra layer on top of just her dying, but he feeling yeah. responsible for it. And yeah. you can see that in the book, like the, the anger and stuff and just the way he, I think he was kind of torturing himself because it wasn't just someone dying, but then like getting brutally murdered and raped and all this stuff. And he just really turned it up to 11. <laughs> yeah. He's really carried it through. There was, there was clearly a lot of pain in there. And I, you know, for a lot of artists, they'll use their emotions and their feelings, you know, and they'll release it through their art. Um, and it just turned out to be the actual opposite effect for Obar, uh, which was super, uh, super unfortunate. It's, it's kind of too bad that he couldn't kind of achieve that, that release and that break. I think it took a long time for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shout out to a couple of people who are hopping, hopping into the chat there. Uh, we got uh, jolly human saying, uh, Hey nerds. And, uh, so, and their second quote, uh, magical mistresses for the win. That's specifically directed at you being the, uh, <laughs> massive Zatanna fan that you are. Uh, intrigue newbie, uh, chimes in. Thank you very much. Uh, fill the thrill, uh, mentions that the sequels keep going down in quality. <laughs> Um, the third, at least, is a little expect. little bit of a cool twist, but yeah, you kind of hope that they hold they hold up a little bit. So for some reason, the makeup gets worse every movie, <laughs> and it's not that hard. It's no. just it's white and a little bit of black highlights, and that's about it. So we're gonna move on to uh, we're gonna play another track here from the Crow soundtrack. Um, this song is called. Uh, it's one of my, uh, one of the songs I selected, and um, it's one of the only female vocal led tracks um, that it's on the album. Uh, the song is called Time Baby Three. Uh, by Medicine with uh, Robin Guthrie. And uh, you are listening to Four Color Radio on the Sound Sugar Radio Network. Yeah. 
And that is Time Baby 3 by Medicine with Robin Guthrie on the Crow soundtrack. Uh, I'm here with my buddy Cyril Akers, and we're talking the Crow, the comic, the movie, the music. Um, and I, before we went into that song, I did uh, mention that this was one of the few tracks on the album um, that has a female lead vocalist on it. Uh, and during the song playing, Cyril and I were talking about all the different bands that are on this. Like we got Rage Against the Machine, The Violent Femmes, Pantera, um, yeah, Jesus and Mary Chain, uh, who were kind of like super alternative and underground. But I mean, a lot of the other bands are super big and super huge at the time. You got a weird mix. Yeah, you've got these like certainly multi-platinum sellers, some of which, you know, we're selling that many records now and or sorry, went on to sell that many later. Yeah. And then you've got some of these bands that will never touch a gold record. <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite, and there was there was somebody who actually suggested when we were talking about doing this one, they suggested that we put the uh, this other artist on there, um, which is to me is the one that stands out the most on this album, which is Jane Sibri. I yep. uh, was got the closing track on this album. The only reason I didn't we didn't use it is because it doesn't it's a long song and we already had a, a couple of long songs in there but it was just like to see all these other names like rollins band you know uh stp nine inch nails and then jane sibri and it was just kind of like all right yeah. well you know it's it, you got to mix it up a little i guess <laughs> yeah i guess they uh, i'm not sure what they were going for they uh, they said hey we've covered a lot of bases with the artists we've got on here but we haven't got adult contemporary yet. So yeah. We need to reach out and <laughs> we so need it. We need to close out. We got to be on every station. On a, yeah, we got to close out on a softer note, yeah. and uh, and make it all kind of come together. Um, the comic book, The Crow. Uh, well, we'll do a little bit of a rundown. Give you guys a little bit of history here. As we mentioned, uh, debuted nineteen eighty nine, uh, and it actually didn't debut as the Crow comic. It debuted in a comic called Caliber Presents Number One. Uh, it was just kind of. Uh, not a full length feature as it were kind of back in the day. Um, the movie came out in 94. And as we talked about five year turnaround from first publication of a character and then five years later to, uh, to hit the screens, uh, debuted in uh, May, uh, May 13th of 94. And it was the top grossing film for that week. Uh, the movie had a budget of $23 million, which <laughs> is laughable by Beautiful. today's standards, yeah. um, but it grossed 94 million. So, I mean, it, it pretty much, uh, that was considered a blockbuster. Uh, and how much of it was carried by, it would be hard to say, cause we don't know the actual circulation numbers for the crow during that period of time. Um, not a huge, not published by a big name publisher by any stretch of the imagination and certainly not getting uh, a lot of, probably a lot of distribution or a lot of media, but it got the film and had the attention of all these bands. Do you think like the soundtrack had an impact a bigger impact um, because it would have attracted a different audience. Like when people in the goth circles would have seen the acts and the bands that are on this soundtrack, yeah. they probably hadn't heard of the crow, the, the comic, but it probably would have drawn them to the movie because yeah, going from a, a doing grossing 94 million in the, back in, then, back then like that's a yeah. beast, especially for a relatively unknown property. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's pretty like a dark movie in terms of that too, right? Like it was an R rated film. Yeah. Uh, which was also the other thing that's super rare about it because you don't have, it's an R-rated anti-hero, you know. Yeah, this is pretty much the level of success you would compare it to Deadpool now. Yeah, and you didn't have the marketing machine behind it back no. then in the early 90s either. There's no Not a huge studio. It was on uh, New Line, I think it was. Yep. It was kind of a sub-label of a, of a bigger distributor. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much of that was carried by maybe some of the press that they were getting for the, the Brandon Lee thing. Um, I like to think that people want to see it because it's a good movie. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that that played a, a role in it as well, as you can imagine. Yeah, which, again, super unfortunate, but, uh, you know, it's it kind of... As someone that was, you know, spent many, many years working in uh, both retail and distribution of comic books... Is this something that's kind of been an evergreen seller ever since the the movie, if not the original publication, or is it kind of had its ups and downs over the years? It, it ups and downs, and it really depends. Like it's changed so many different publishers over the years since yeah. it came out too. And uh, right now, I believe I want to say it's IDW uh, has done the last couple mini series. Last actual comic, yeah, which is one that just came out last year. This one here yeah. I've got is I don't know Simon and Schuster. So. Yeah, so it was, it kind of moved around quite a bit. And I think it has a loyal audience, um, but it's still low key. Uh, according to their own uh, numbers that they put out, that since the book started, all copies of The Crow, comic book wise, have uh, have a circulation number of about 750,000. But we're talking a book that's been off and on publications for, for 20 plus years. Um, so that's like, it's good numbers, but they're certainly not great numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's gonna... Spawn back in the day sold more than that. Yeah, <laughs> <In> one <month. laughs> pretty well. Thing. All right, we're going to move on to our next track here of the evening. Uh, this one, probably my favorite band name who I'd never heard of until <laughs> I had actually, like, looked at the track a little bit more. But this track is called uh, After the Flesh, uh, and it's by a band called My Life with a Thrill Kill Cult.
future. And that is After the Flesh by My Life with a Thrill Kill Cult. And it's cult with a K. It is. It is, which is, I don't know if that's even necessary. But uh, fun fact that you brought up, they are one of the two bands that actually perform in the movie. They do. They are in the movie, and uh, apparently it took two days to film that little snippet that they're in there. And they were in a abandoned cement factory. It was minus 20 degrees and uh, probably very unpleasant. But uh, they banged it out. And that's why they're all wearing, like, toques and, like, heavy coats and stuff you wouldn't really imagine, like, a, a goth industrial band wearing on stage. But that's why. And they were freezing. Yeah, but at least, like, unlike a lot of the other songs that are on the soundtrack, this one is pretty quick. It's uh, it's, yeah. it's not as melodic and, and you, I think you used the word drippy. Is that what the... Slow and drippy. Slow and drippy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that, uh, you know, this is a good choice because then they, they threw it in one of the other high action scenes in uh, the big shootout and... Uh, it's certainly a good song to accompany something like that, a big action scene, nice and fast and aggressive and uh, gets you going. Yeah, it's, it's pretty sweet. It's, uh, yeah, it's super weird all around, I think, a lot of the stuff that's on this, on this soundtrack. Um, but like you said, it, it all works really well in the film. Did you find there was anything that kind of felt out of place or did it all just kind of go? The Jane Sibbery song. <laughs> I'm assuming that happened over the closing credits. I can't remember. Yeah, it would probably make the most sense. Um, we did have uh, in the chat room, uh, Phil the Thrill had mentioned, um, you know, there are actually four uh, Crow movies altogether, and in none of them did they ever actually make the Crow a female character, which J.O. Barr did in yes. one of the comic uh, series. Flesh and Blood, I think it was. Yeah. Which had one of the really the coolest concepts for someone wanting to come back for revenge. Uh, she was a school teacher. Mm-hmm. If not running on orphanage, I think it was school teacher. It had to do with yeah. And somehow the school gets bombed and all the kids are killed, and then uh, she comes back for revenge. So yeah, certainly a good reason to want to come back and uh, extract <laughs> revenge for sure. I'm sure I have uh, more than a few school teacher uh, friends who would probably do the same thing. Uh, there you go. They would probably it's do relatable. it even. They'd probably do it right now. They would just go for revenge on uh, <laughs> on a couple of people. Um, we're not, not necessarily talk about this new school curriculum thing. We're we? not. No, we're not going to sidetrack in anything that that ridiculous. Um, but uh, yeah, um, there. I think the, the the legacy of this book and its creator and everything that came out of it is is truly unique. And I was kind of wondering, like, how if the crow didn't come out then, if it came out now, um, like how how well do you think it would have done? Would it had kind of the same effect or impact? Would it get buried in amongst everything else that's going on in the world? I think, yeah. I mean, right now there's, there's such a strong presence of independent publishers, or at least I don't know how independent you would consider like image these days. They're mm-hmm. certainly a big player, but independent basically being anything that's not Marvel or DC. Yeah. There's so many books on the shelf now that, uh, I mean, this is something that was, you look at the 80s, it stood out because it was it was really violent and it was right out there with stuff like Faust and kind of that, that new wave of independent books that were coming up that were really kind of R-rated in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, and a big part of that black, and, and, that black yeah. and white movement as well. So it was like yeah. the cost, the cost, the entry point was easy, the cost was low, you didn't have to worry about coloring and yeah. the, the extra cost for printing. So, And now, I mean, there's, there's so much of that stuff. So it's hard to look at it in comparison to what's out now because it, it just, uh, it would just fall in as another book. But looking at what was on the shelf back then, you can see why it stood out. Yeah, there wasn't really as much as the as much as the um, the anti hero sentiment. I mean, even the Punisher was 
the Punisher was kind of the big thing, but yeah. even by the time the movie would have come out in 95, the Punisher probably had, I think he was down to 16 titles uh, from the 24 <laughs> that he previously had. Um, and, and don't forget Wolverine being in every book. You oh. couldn't get a publishing license from Marvel unless you had a spot for Wolverine. In yeah. <laughs> so, so I think, yeah, I think the crow really did kind of stand out at that point and, uh, and was able to make the impact that it did. It's unfortunate. A lot of the, kind of the baggage and uh, and everything that kind of yeah. came along with it. But I think uh, it certainly has stuck around to this point. It's crossed over into other things. Like I, I dropped the WCW bomb on there, yeah. um, and we know that Sting was we call him a, a Crow Sting. fan. Crow. Call him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and the next time I have you back, we'll we'll see if we can tie more wrestling into this, because I know you're a huge, huge <laughs> wrestling fan as well, uh, which is awesome. But we're going to roll into our final song of the show here. Um, probably my personal favorite off the soundtrack, and it was not a song that I believe was written um, for the soundtrack. It was already on uh, the Stone Temple Pilots uh, release, and we're, we're not exactly sure of the timeline, but we're thinking the second album had already kind of come out for them. Yeah, they had another track they wanted to put in called <laughs> Only Dying, but then after Brandon died, they're like, ah, we'll just put something else on. <laughs> Hashtag too soon. <laughs> All right, so we're going to roll out here with our final song uh, by Stone Temple Pilots called The Big Empty. Take a ride and leave 
Stone Temple Pilots with The Big Empty. Uh, probably my favorite song off the soundtrack. Uh, one of my favorite bands, uh, according to the chat. Not everyone's favorite band, but uh, <laughs> we don't need to talk about those people. Those haters. We can hate somewhere else. Uh, that brings us to the end of another episode of Four Color Radio. I really want to thank my guest, uh, Cyril Akers, for coming in. Uh, Awesome job, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the great insight. Yeah. yeah, and thank you so much for turning me on to all the music that you've turned me on to in the last few years. We've Devin been friends. Devin Townsend. Shout out to Devin Townsend. Uh, I hope you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know he is. That dude's tuned into everything. Uh, next week on a uh, on Four Color Radio, uh, my guest will be Sylvia Douglas, a local filmmaker and nerd, and we will be reviewing the first of many Batman soundtracks. Um, the, but the soundtrack we're going to be doing next week, probably a little bit unexpected. Uh, it'll be Mask of the Phantasm, the animated, the first full-length animated Batman feature that was in films back in the 90s. Um, so we're certainly looking forward to that. Uh, I would close out the uh, show with uh, the theme song that I had composed by uh, my buddy Adrian Ellis. Um, but since we had to switch laptops to get rid of that annoying clicking sound, I don't have access to it. So <laughs> I'm going to uh, thank Cyril once again. I'm going to thank everyone who ch uh, chimed in in the chat and for everyone who tuned in and listened to our uh, review of the Crow soundtrack. Thank you so much for listening to Full Color or Four Color Radio, and I hope you tune in again with us next week. <laughs>